What is up, friends? Hello. Welcome back to a Thursday edition of the New Evangelicals podcast. So good to have you. I wanted to get this episode out a little bit sooner because the reality is I'm like 12 weeks backlogged on the show. There are so many amazing guests coming out. But this episode, I wanted to have more in real time because I actually just met this person and hung out with him um, at um, like a protest in Nashville um, where we were with other people. People advocating for for gun legislation. I interviewed on this episode Shane Claiborne, um, who wrote a book most recently, "Rethinking Life: Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person." This is actually, I gotta say. When I saw the book title, I'm like, oh, God, we're going to talk about abortion. Then I'm thinking about, well, you know, um, Shane's a guy. I'm a guy. I'm not sure if it's our conversation to have. But then I saw that people like Lisa Sharon Harper and Kristen Dumez endorsed the book. So I said, let me give it a read. It's a really good book. And it, it's way bigger and more broad than just talking about abortion. And I thought the way Shane talked about the abortion topic was really well done. So I had him on the podcast to talk about that, to talk about about uh, some of his work. And I will say it is kind of a full circle moment for me personally, because one of the earliest books I read that started shifting how I thought about God in the Bible and the Christian faith was Irresistible Revolution, which was written by Shane uh, quite a long time ago. I was 18 reading it in Germany. So having him come on the show, meeting him in person, um, getting lunch with him. It was really cool, and I'm really honored to have him on the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I also want to say that we are currently in the middle of a week-long um, fundraising campaign because we are a nonprofit organization, and the way that we're able to make everything completely free uh, financially for the community is to you know raise money to make this work possible. So we're in the middle of something called Holy shit week. Yes, that's right. We are doing kind of a play on Holy Week and we're asking people to, hey, share your holy shit moment when you realize that something was wrong in your faith tradition. So what you can do is anyone um, who donates $10 as a monthly donor or a one-time $30 donation uh, will be able to share their holy shit moment on our donor wall and also be entered to win one of three, I think, pretty cool prizes. So the first prize is we're doing some brand new merch and you'll be the first to get that totally free the second prize is a lunch with me either in person or over zoom depending on the location and the third thing i think this might actually um wet your whistle so to speak is we are giving away you co-hosting the podcast with me for an episode. That could be so much fun. So like I said, all you have to do is either sign up for a $10 monthly donation or more or a one-time $30 donation to be entered to win and also uh, have a chance to share your holy shit moment on our donor box wall. I think that, that, that's so funny. Um, um, our donor person who helps me out with this stuff, she created the campaign. It's really well done. Um, and we're having some fun. You know, we're just, we're just having some fun and finding ways to continue to make this work possible. So all donations made are tax deductible. You can click on the link in our show notes to make that happen. You'll be entered to win. And hopefully I'll be hanging out with you for a podcast um, interview with a guest uh, sometime in the near future. So that being said, friends, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and sharing this episode. If you like the podcast, can you give us a rating and a review? That'd be so cool. And just to clarify regarding, by the way, the, the holy shit 
flagship campaign thing. It only goes until this Saturday. So if you're listening to this on a Monday or if it, if you're in May or later, the campaign's over, so it doesn't apply to you. But if you're listening to this right away, anytime between Thursday and Saturday is a time to make that happen. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my episode with Shane Claiborne. Talk to you all later. All right. Well, um, another wow. This will be a very exciting conversation, Shane Claiborne. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, thank you for making time. It's great to have you. Heck yeah, man! I'm <laughs> pumped. We, you know, I don't know if everybody knows this, but this is like the third attempt. You, you got COVID, then <laughs> I got COVID, and uh, yes, yeah. Here we are, man. Here we but are. It's, it's great to do it right now, you know, because we're riding the wave. Of, well, I guess we're going to talk about all that, but man, it's, it's awesome to see you. <laughs> don't yeah. spoil things, Shane. I have to keep the audience on the hook, you know, so that way they listen. It, it is cool. You know, you and I are pretty much neighbors. We're about 15 minutes apart from each other. I, I've been to your shop where you dismantle guns. Um, in Philly, in Kensington. Um, and so it is very cool. I, I got to be just transparent. It is very much surreal for me to be even, you know, uh, talking to you or, or, or getting lunch with you because I grew up, you know, and um, Irresistible Revolution was one of the books that planted some very early seeds for me that I think put me on this trajectory of the work that I'm doing now. I was actually in Germany on a short-term missions trip, still very much in my evangelical bubble, and I'm listening to like Paul Washer and John MacArthur sermons, but I also brought your book along. And I'm reading, I'm like, ooh, I've never thought about like the gospel in a social context before. This is really interesting. And so I just want to say publicly, you know, I really appreciate that book because for me, it really did plant those seeds. So thank you for writing it. Oh, dude, you're making me blush and everything. And I do feel a little bit old, but it's awesome. Yeah, man, no, it's all good. <laughs> okay, so I, I, it I'm really not... means a lot, though, man. Seriously, it does mean a lot because I know all the folks that have, you know, spoken life into me. And um, so it, it's really fun to be getting to know each other and getting a chance to hang out. So, yeah, yeah. Man, totally. Well, I definitely wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. So the book was really impactful. Whenever I tell my own story, I always tell that exact example I just gave you because it's true. It really did plant those seeds. So, so, you know, I'm not going to go through too much through your backstory because we, we've talked uh, before and, and you're, you're out there pretty well. But just for the audience who maybe doesn't know who you are, can you just give us a very quick, you know, um, maybe introduction, a brief background and then, and then the work that you do now? Absolutely. Well, I'm a Tennessee boy. And even though I've been out of there for a couple of decades, I still got my Southern twang. Um, I grew up in East Tennessee. Tim, I grew up, like, I don't know if I've told you this, but the hill, like, the, the the mountainside that my family is from is the same one that Dolly Parton's from. So they, like, you know, heard her playing on the front porch and stuff. So those are my people. Wow. Man. And on a different, a very different note, my uncle just told me there's some kind of reality moonshine show or something like that. And he's like, <laughs> yo, man, those are our cousins. So, uh, oh, you know, oh those my are my gosh. people. <laughs> moonshiners and country music and i grew up with guns you know i grew i grew up really um in a very different environment where i you know than where i am now it was also a really segregated town um as we know you know tennessee still has a lot of residue of racism and uh segregation so like my high school had the confederate flag on everything um and i you know I, I really only got eyes to see some of that by getting uh out of east tennessee and i still love my my people love my state but uh philadelphia's been home for the last 25 years 
Wow. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, you know, you've seen our community. We, we've we been building this little neighborhood, little village for, for those 25 years. And um, and it started as, as a group of homeless moms and kids that were living in an abandoned cathedral. We got involved in that as 20-year-olds and never been the same, man. So, I mean, that, that really was part of what brought my faith to life and connected it to um, – issues of justice and poverty. And, uh, you know, I kind of moved on from this version of Christianity that was just about kind of using our faith as a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore the the suffering, uh, you know, that we see right now in, in the world we live in. So, yeah, uh, yeah, dude, that's it. There, there's a quick version. You, you started an organization or you were one of the founding members of the simple way. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's the name of the community that we started here, totally. Okay, and then you also just opened up a, an actual shop in, in Philadelphia called Raw Tools, uh, where you, you dismantle guns. What is, how has that been? Has that been received well in your community? I mean, give me some, some background there. Totally. So, I mean, everything for us, we talk a lot. I mean, it might feel a little uh, theological, but we, we talk about a theology of place, right? Like of, of, of having a sense that this is where we live. The, these are the neighbors that we're trying to love as ourselves. It's not just this like kind of abstract thing, but we're yeah. really, and you know, even like when we pray thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're like thinking about Potter Street, you know, and East West yeah. Moreland, you're like, what does it look like to pursue God's dream in our neighborhood? So that's meant a lot of things. You know, it, it, we, we do affordable housing. So we started this whole nonprofit called Simple Homes to fix up abandoned houses. And more recently, I mean, one of the, the latest things that we've been doing is um, uh, really confronting the, the gun violence that's taken so many people's lives in our neighborhood. Uh, and it's, it's an extension of love of loving our neighbor means uh, doing something about the thing that the things that, that's crushing so many people's uh, lives and families. Um, so just the last couple of years in Philadelphia, gun violence is the highest it's ever yeah. been yeah. in the history of Philadelphia. And, and that's yeah. really a, something sadly that's, happening all over our country, over 40,000 gun deaths in a year. Um, and uh, it's the number one cause of death of our kids. So, uh, yeah, we wanted to do something about it. So, we, you know, we're inspired by the biblical prophets that talk about beating swords into plows. So, we're beating guns into plows and yeah, shovels yeah. and, yeah, other, we say, life-giving things. <laughs> I, I mean, listen, I love that. I am 10 minutes away from Philadelphia. I, I call Philadelphia really, you know, my, my city because I'm so close to it. I, I love cheesesteaks. I've played, I've, I've played music in, in Philadelphia. I've been there countless times. And I'm, I'm aware that, you know, the gun violence has reached a fever pitch. And, I mean, th these stories that, that, that I'm seeing online that, and from people that I follow, they're, they're incredible. They're really versions of hell on earth. I mean, you know, kids are dying. Um, you know, I, there was a story, I think, um, last Thanksgiving of a family sitting down to eat and a, a stray bullet flew into their house and killed one of them, mm. you know, just sitting down mm. for Thanksgiving dinner. And I, I think I want to start here because you, you wrote a, a book. It just came out, Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. Um, people like Lisa Sharon Harper, Kristen Dumez endorsed the book. I read the whole thing. I, I really, I really liked the book. I thought it was wonderful. And um, it seems like 
you know, in America, we we continue to have this this con- this this dead end circular conversation around gun violence, where we have one perspective that insists it's not the guns, it's not the amount of guns, it's just bad people who are doing bad things with these guns, and you have another side, and I'm I'm, I'm definitely speaking broadly here, but you know, in general, you have this other side that says actually we have more guns than people. Um, other countries have people with mental illness or or you know people who grow without it without a father in their home and they're not committing these kinds of mass shootings because they don't have access to these kinds of guns and you know as someone for you someone like you who is who is i think really tapped into this conversation and, and more than that it has action behind that i mean whether it's a small shop in in philly that you're where you're, you're actually beating guns in the plows or um the rally that you and i were just at in nashville you know um, um where, where you and others marched into the capitol building um to say hey we need to change things how do you navigate this conversation that for, i'm just gonna be honest frankly is infuriating for me personally I, I i just can't believe that we're in this cycle of 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 dead end conversations um because to me i think it's just so clear how do you navigate this conversation with people because <laughs> you're much more patient than i am frankly well <laughs> be honest I, well for for starters i think um a, a good dose of holy rage is what we should be feeling right now. I mm-hmm. mean, um, and and grief, you know, and yeah. mourning. Um, uh, and 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 so you know, when people say, which we hear often, that this is not a gun problem, it's a heart problem, or yeah. it's a sin problem, right? Uh, right, it's a human problem. Um, I like to say it can be both, you know, um, that, that there is a heart problem that I think we need to, uh, to really deal with. Um, there, there's a culture of violence in our world. You know I mean? It's in video games. It's, uh, um, in our films, it's, it's in our culture, you know, it's, it gets, it gets inside of us if we aren't careful. Hmm. Um, and, and yet like, Every country in the world has the heart problem. You know, you got violent video games. You got folks that struggle with mental health. You got people that are just violent, you know, or racist, and they want to carry out really terrible things. But what's unique about America, where we stand alone, is uh, the access to the power to do that. You know, the access to unimaginable um weapons that can take so many lives and and that's why you know we we like lead the entire world in in gun deaths um and um and in the whole world is kind of watching scratching their head going what in the what are they thinking and so i i think it's it's actually very accurate to use a religious word about for this which is that we've created a form of idolatry Hmm. for guns and idols you know it might sound a little outdated but idols are things that we are willing to die for and kill for and yeah. sacrifice our children for. Yeah. Uh, and, and guns have certainly become that where we give this kind of sacred reverence that belongs only to God, you know, and we, we attribute that they make these promises. That's what idols do, right? That they'll rid the world of evil. They'll protect us or, you know, all this stuff. And right. yet like, Scripture is really clear that like some may trust in chariots and some may trust in horses, some may trust in their Glock, but you know, we're to trust <laughs> right. in God. So, right. um, you know, and like I said, I grew up with guns. Um, and I, this is the good news though, man, is that what I think is happening is that we, we've got to distinguish a little bit between gun extremists 
and gun owners. Yeah. And um, and the fact is, two-thirds of Americans, two-thirds live without guns, live unarmed, right? Wow. But there's a handful of people. So a third of us, a third of folks have guns. Uh, I'm, I'm not a firearm owner, but um, m- many folks are. But there's, a lot of them are responsible about it. There's 3% of our population. Get this. 3% of the population that own almost half of the guns. And that's an average of like 20 each. So that's where we're getting into the like extremism. This is not about, you know, even having a handgun in the house or like a a hunting rifle. This has become a bit of an obsession for some folks, right? We we interviewed or we looked at this one guy that we profile that has 4,000 guns. So that's where this becomes really a, a problem, you know, uh, where, and, and the fact that people are saying more guns are going to solve our gun problem. It's it's like an alcoholic saying, I've got a problem. I need some whiskey, you know? Right. Well, I mean, I, I, I do often think like, well, if technically there are more guns than people in America, what what's the ratio we need before like this, this, these, this violent things happen, uh, stop happening. And I, I appreciate what you said about gun owners versus gun extremists, because, okay, me and my dad is a gun owner. I grew up around guns my entire life. I have shotguns. I technically, my dad gifted me a gun, but it's at his house. I really don't want it in my house right now. Um, and, and, and my dad is an incredibly responsible gun owner. Okay. Yeah. I think he has two or three tops. I never knew where they were stored, never knew where the keys were. They were always, you know, the chamber and the and the uh, magazine was always separate from the gun. And now that that I have kids and they spend time there, I talked to my dad. You know, I said, hey, listen, you know, I know you're responsible, but kids can get into things. I need for my own peace of mind to know that 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 whatever guns you have are secured and locked away. And he showed me how everything is safely secured, you know, impossible for a three-year-old to get their hands on. So I agree with you that there are people who own a firearm um, and who are incredibly responsible. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. My struggle is, is I look at like how, how in many States, how easy it is to get access to firearms that are designed to kill as many people in the shortest amount of time as possible. I mean, there's a reason why, especially in these mass shootings, it's an AR 15 I think legitimately every single time, and I'm as far as I'm aware, they're almost always bought legally. And so I'm always surprised to hear from people who are like, I know we can't have any restrictions, but it's like, listen, we're not, no one that I'm aware of is like, we have to confiscate every single gun in America. That would be a ridiculous task anyway. But simply trying to say, maybe AR-15 should not be readily available <laughs> to the public. And no, somehow that's like yeah. an extreme position. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, here's here, like the, the contradictions we live in. I think this is where people are starting to get fed up, right? It's illegal to have fireworks in Philadelphia uh, because, pe- you know, our, our government considers it dangerous. And yet right. you can have an AR-15, wow. right? So this is part of the, the problem is you don't have grenades on the street because they're right. dangerous. Like, why do we have weapons of war that are designed for one purpose, as you rightfully said, you know, to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And even when you think about the Second Amendment, right? I'm with people all the time that are gun owners that are deeply concerned about gun violence. And they say when the Second Amendment was written, they wrote well regulated in it for a reason. (laughs) And when the Second Amendment was written, guns shot one or two rounds a minute. Now they can shoot a hundred rounds in a minute. So um, this is what I found interesting is we've, you know, as I've written a couple books on this, bro, is is that – a majority of gun owners want to see 
some changes. Hmm. And so like even in our shop, we've got free locks for gun owners. We've got entire coalitions of gun owners concerned about gun violence. There's one group, bro, called uh, Hunters Against Assault Weapons. And on the Ooh. back of their shirts, it says, you don't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer. Um, <laughs> and, and so there's there's a growing movement. And, um, and the NRA, this is why I say like, it's not the gun owners, it's the gun extremists and the gun profiteers that hmm. are really a part of the problem. So when like the National Rifle Association, like when they say we represent, you know, 5 million people, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. What we also need to hear is that that means 90, over 90% of gun owners are not a part Mm. of the NRA. And in fact, Moms Demand Action now has more members than the NRA. So they are very loud. They buy off a lot of politicians, but over half of gun owners find themselves at odds with the uncompromising, like kind of ideology of the NRA. And so, so, you know, sometimes people will be like, what, what kind of common sense laws do you, what what do you mean by that? Common sense laws, right? Yeah. Right. So, and I, I start by saying like, let's think about cars, right? Like cars are not even designed to kill, but they can be dangerous. So we've done all kinds of things to try to make uh, people safer, right? right. Uh, so we, you know, you you gotta show that you can drive a car before you can get one, right? Or get a license. You um, right. you gotta pass a test. You you gotta be a certain age. You gotta um, uh, uh, if you abuse the right to own a car then you can lose your license, right? We've got all kinds of laws, speed limit laws, now texting and driving. All these things are designed to make people safe. Yeah. And yet you think, and there's technology too, airbags, seatbelts, all that stuff. And like the, one of the most unevolved technologies is is the guns. Like we could have technology like fingerprint technology that would make guns a little safer, but we could certainly pass some common sense policies, right? Yeah. That, um, Martin Luther King, he had a great line. He said, a law can't make you love me, but it can make it harder for you to kill me. <laughs> right, right. And that's, that's what we should do, right? Yeah. So I, I'll tell you one, like one like concrete law in Pennsylvania right now is called one handgun a month. So listen to this. This is like handguns, pistols. It says one person can only have up to 12 handguns in a year, right? And you're going, like, who wants... More you only got two hands, bro. <laughs> right. And you're like, oh, I, that's not someone that's making the world safer, that needs more than 12 right. handguns a year. So um, that's why a lot of gun owners, 80% or so, are behind some of these laws, limiting the capacity. We know like 16 to 20-year-olds are responsible for a disproportionate amount of gun violence. So, you know, you can't buy a beer, you can't rent a car, should you be able to have an AR-15? Like, right. these are good. Domestic abusers, we know that's a good... Like red, you know, it's a, it's a signal that if you're hurting your own family, if you're convicted of domestic violence, it's very likely you're, you might kill your own family member or you might hurt someone outside of your family. So let's flag those domestic abusers. You know, so those are the background checks, all of that. That's what people mean when they say common sense gun laws and all these are, these are tried and true. So that's why like, it is frustrating, bro, especially when you're communicating with fellow Christians that claim to be pro-life and yet on one of the biggest causes of death in our country every single person who's being killed made in the image of god like you would you would hope that we would be the champions of life and i will say like like you that 
I'm, I'm encouraged because I think there is a new generation that's fed up with the excuses. They're done with the thoughts and prayers without being coupled with action. And we saw that right down in Nashville. No, I, I have to agree with you. And I, I want to point out to the audience that, you know, everything you mentioned for these for these laws are not about taking away guns from like or access to guns for people. People have the option to get them, but can we have some rules and regulations in place? You know, one example I think about is New Jersey. So New Jersey is eight and a half million people. It's the most densely populated state. People can own firearms, but there are rules in place. And we yeah. it, we are like number 50 on as far as, as as actual gun violence goes in the whole country. We're one of the lowest states to have that. Most of the violence from gun violence is brought is brought in from guns out of state, yeah. not even from ones that happen in the state. And we our last mass shooting was a long time ago. Now I'm not saying everything is perfect or what all that. I'm just saying that we can see how you can have a, a society where, listen, we get it. Cat's out of the bag. The guns are in the ecosystem, okay? We're not going to destroy every single gun. And and for certain purposes, like hunting, and even in some cases, for some, maybe self-defense, I get that. But there are rules that will allow good people to still be able to own a firearm legally that also seem to be effective in stopping, uh, you know, um, gun violence as, as much as possible. Um, totally, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know I mean, and, you know, I, I think of... Um yeah, the, this is an interesting quote because I don't quote James Madison all the time, but this is the father of the Constitution. Listen, and listen to this. We quote him in our Beating Guns book. He said, liberty can be uh, abused or liberty can be endangered by the abuse of power. Hmm. But then he says, liberty can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty. Hmm. Wow. I mean, here's the like dude that helped write the Second Amendment going, <laughs> right, right. one person's right to live. Um, can be endangered by another person's right to like have unregulated uh, access to f- f- as many and whatever firearms they want. So these are not like rights that should be. That's why they wrote regulated into it. You know? <laughs> yeah. No. Totally. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think one other point I want to make on this topic, and then we'll we'll kind of dig more into the book. Is you know I was at the rally with you um, in in Tennessee um, a, a few days ago, and. One of the speakers, I forgot her name, but she was one of the people whose son attended Covenant School. And thankfully he made it out. He was he was not injured. But I gotta be honest, Shane, and even you know, recalling it brings makes me very emotional. That her speech, I mean, it, it really broke me. I mean, in so many ways. Yeah. And and one thing she said um that that really I think drove home the point for me of like, yeah, we we need, we must make gun laws happen like whatever it takes is is when she said that covenant school had all the right preventive measures in place the teachers were trained for the sound of an ar-15 they had the doors locked they had bulletproof glass i've also read reports and i'm not sure if this if this was true at the time but the school did allow for teachers to 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 carry um and and so everything was in place for for if, if an active shooter was to happen all of the, of the uh, dare I say, rhetoric we hear from the gun extremist lobbyists, we can say, was in place. And yeah. it still took the lives of three beautiful, innocent children who should still be here today and three adults who should still be here today. Yeah. And I, I I tend to agree with you, Shane. I think especially with Gen Z, uh, so many of them and people like myself as, as, as millennials are like, I, if I hear one more politician say thoughts and prayers or one more faith leader say thoughts and prayers, I'm just going to vomit because I, and not to speak – 
you know, well, I'm just going to say it. God's not answering the prayer. Okay. Like call whatever you want, but like the prayers you're praying to God are, they're not, they're not solving the problem. We need action here. And mm-hmm. so do you think, do you really feel like, like based on what you're seeing that we're really on the precipice of really making change happen in the country when it comes to gun violence and our gun laws? What are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, so I, 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 um, I totally agree when, you know, you know, when you got, uh, the, the, the thought it's the, the, the essence of taking the Lord's name in vain. Yes. When we, when we offer thoughts and prayers without taking the necessary actions yes. that we could to prevent gun violence. Um, I mean, I think it was Miroslav Wolf that said it must be really offensive to God when we ask God to do what God's given us the power to do. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, my, my mentors all said, you know, sometimes we're throwing our hands up at God saying, do something. And God saying, I did do something. I made you, you know, like right. you ask God to move a mountain. God gives you a shovel. Right. So I think right. we have the power to change this it's a matter not if we can but do we have the will right mm. and and that's where i mean the right time to do this was after columbine after yeah. sandy hook after yeah. uvalde i mean over and over and over and there comes a point where you really do start to go there are some people who have created such an idolatry out of this metal that they're willing to protect it at the cost of human lives and I, I don't, you know, I, I think that that's where the young people, right, from uh, Parkland to the Black Lives Matter movement to the Poor People's Campaign, I mean, this is on everybody's agenda, yeah. is to try to save lives, because we know that we can. I yeah. mean, we've even had an assault weapons ban uh, that we know saves some lives, but there's, there's a, you know, dozens of laws that I think we could have that would save more lives, and, and we're not going to save every life. I mean, if people want to kill folks, they can find a way to do it, right. but the fact is, that even when we were writing our book, bro, the first stat that when we started writing Beating Guns was 90 a day, before we had finished the manuscript, we had to change that statistic to 100 a day. And now, two years later, that statistic is 120 lives every single day. So in my lifetime, we've lost more lives to guns than in all of the wars of all of American history combined. I mean, that's wow. messed up, right? Yeah. So that that that's why you, there's no possible way that we can say we are pro-life and ignore you know this issue. And and I'm not a single issue person. I mean, that's why we're gonna we're getting ready to, you know talk about other stuff too. But right, I, right. I dedicated a book to this, uh, beating guns, because on this issue, Christians are part of the problem. We we own guns at a higher rate than the general population. When it comes to championing gun rights, we're on the forefront of that, and we're yeah. the last folks to step up sometimes to to call for these common sense changes. Yeah. Um, and you know, same on the death penalty. So, like, I wrote a book on both of those. But then I, you know, I wrote this new book um, because I felt like we needed to zoom out a little bit um, from just the issues and to build a. a, a broader, deeper foundation for, you know, what it really means to be for life and to champion life. Well, let's talk about that. Okay. Let's kind of dive into your book for a few minutes here, because, you know, when I first got it, I'm thinking, okay, this book's going to be about abortion. That's what I thought. (laughs) uh, You know, listen, I mean, the front cover is a heartbeat with a heart. I'm like, okay, just for me as a, uh, as someone who grew up in the pro-life movement, as a conservative white evangelical, I think life in this context, I think, okay, it's all about abortion. But luckily, you know, you wrote broader than that and also talked about abortion. And and you really talk about 
maybe um, rethinking life in a lot of ways as as Christians. I want to start here though. You 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 do a really good job of kind of giving us a crash course into some of the how into, into how some of the early Christians thought. Can you give us like some of those things that that maybe as you were researching just stood out to you regarding the Christians before uh, Constantine kind of made Christianity the empire's religion? One of the things that's so beautiful. And so, like, inspirational for me um, is how consistent these early Christ followers were, you know, in this the second and third century. Um, and um, they spoke passionately against violence and death in every manifestation that it had. Um, so, they spoke against uh, the death penalty. They spoke against military combat they spoke against the gladiatorial games which they they considered sort of this glamorization of violence in their own culture mm. um and they did speak about abortion uh, but it was one of so many others in the, the this this sort of collage of um of a passion for life you know that was out there um and what's interesting is there are a lot of christians that'll go to romans 13 which i, I don't assume everybody knows what that is you know but it's a ver- it's a chapter of paul's writing that's often gives sort of the the state a blank check to for the death penalty for war for so many different things right and yet the early christians it was so interesting because they never did that hmm. they they said it is wrong to kill no matter who does it whether it's done by a criminal or by a governor hmm. um or a, a a king or an emperor right so cyprian one of the early bishops he said it's interesting that we call we say it's evil if an individual kills another individual and he says we should call that evil right but isn't it interesting that we sanctify it when the state does it in mass and we yeah. call it good right. and that's what we do in war it's what we do with the death penalty so you know i think that's why to me they're a good place to look because this is the the innocence the be- the beauty of this early youthful uh uh passionate um jesus revolution that was happening in the streets and and they were they were very radical about it they said even if if a new convert wants to be baptized then their career needs to be considered is it compatible with their uh devotion to jesus right and they actually named careers that were incompatible (laughs) right so like (laughs) if you work in the brothels Got to rethink the job, right? If you sculpt idols, then you're you you got to find a new vocation in Christ. Uh, they did the same for military service. Like if you, um, they, they said it's you know for Christ we we can die but we cannot kill. Um, so you you know you've got to reconsider your your. Uh, vocation when you make a commitment with your whole life to jesus and and one of those you know was it was all about violence and the things that were um the antithesis of the sermon on the mount and the things that that christian discipleship meant Mm. so um you mentioned in the book how and we we both understand but just for the audience to hear it we know we're speaking very broadly there's a lot of christian history going on here but you talk about um constantine right constantine says okay hey christians you want to become like the state religion essentially and that's when maybe the beginning of things start to change what starts to change um you know um in that period for christianity well certainly um 
it's it's sort of that tipping point, right? It, it, it wasn't a moment, but there was kind of a movement towards this that, uh, and it wasn't just, sometimes people think it was just because Christians became the majority uh, religion. It wasn't just that. It was all about proximity to power, mm. right? And, and that's why it's also so relevant to today, you know, yes. is that, um, yes. that, that when Christians, um, they did become the majority population. They began to, you know, outnumber, uh, uh, the the other folks that weren't Christian, but but then they began to gain power, and so at that point there was a shift from being the persecuted church to being the persecutors, mm-hmm. and literally they began to do the same kinds of persecuting people of other faiths or no faith that had happened to them: torture, murder, burning down their buildings, burning their holy books, all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like we so quickly forgot. Uh, who we are, and you know, we we really exchange the cross for a sword, mm. and we and we and, and and we began to lose our identity, the distinctiveness of what it looked like to follow Jesus. Uh, and and Constantine's interesting because he's he's sort of this contradiction. Um, uh, he wasn't the worst of the worst, certainly. Um, and, and like as far as persecuting Christians, yeah. But then what happened was he began to kind of try to mesh faith with with being uh, an emperor, right? Mm, yeah, <laughs> and so right, literally, right. he held the you know uh, like kind of authorized and helped convene the Council of Nicaea, one of the most important moments in church history. And then right after that, killed his own family, dude. Like brother killed. <laughs> his family and now he's you know he's revered as a saint and folks say that he had this conversion you know but the fact is like he, he there were some things that he did that i think made society better but there's a whole lot of things that he did mm-hmm. that you see this paradox in him in fact one of the things he said let's stop killing people as much so he outlawed um crucifixion as a form of punishment, but he didn't outlaw the death penalty. He just mm. said crucifixion is an offense to Christ, but we can kill people in other ways, you know? <laughs> right, right, what? right. Yeah. Right. It's not the killing, it's the form of killing because Christ yeah. was crucified. Yeah, okay. All right. So let's fast forward now, you know, a couple thousand years. And here we are. We're in we're in America. It's the year 2023. You know, your book, uh, I think for a lot of people who maybe want to crash course into some um, American evangelical history and just some of the ways that we have not been uh, consistently pro-life. In fact, sometimes to our own embarrassment and 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 reality, we've actually been the proponents of, of quite the opposite. Uh, one of your chapters is uh, we theologized hate, and I found that chapter really um, convicting and really like a, another one of these. Whoa, um, I I'm not I'm still not aware of just how deep some of this stuff went. Can you kind of give us uh, an overview of that chapter? What you're talking about there? Yeah. Um- so one of the things that you start to see is that there is this sort of poisonous theology that begins to surface really early on. Um, in fact, one of the earliest versions of that is anti-Semitism, and it's the sense from even some really early Christian thinkers yeah. that Jews, rather than all of humanity's sins, Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. Um, and there's scripture that you can kind of twist a little bit to like uh, make your case for that, right? Um, and yet, 
what this ended up doing was seeing that these people, the Jews, like they were the God killers. They yeah. didn't recognize the Messiah. And we see some of that residue even in Zionism today, this idea that like there's there's this sense that like Israel in a broad sense um, has some apocalyptic role, but there's still a whole lot of anti-Semitism towards Jews um, yes, yes. and Jewish people, right? And so there's a lot of ways that that manifests itself, but there were laws that made it illegal for Christians to marry Jewish people, all kinds of laws that discriminated against Jewish folks. I mean, we did that later to Muslims and stuff like you know, but this is going back early on and starting to see how we theologized hatred, right? And then some of this paves the way for um, uh, Martin Luther and others that said, I mean, called Jewish people names. I don't even want to repeat them, but yeah. it's terrible, ugly. Right. And there's folks that have said, well, we tried to, you know, correct that, uh, but it's there, right? And it doesn't go away. It keeps taking new, uh, just like racism takes new iterations, yeah. like. Yeah. Anti-Semitism did too. And Hitler, right, he builds on some of this. So some of this paved the way for, you know, obviously one of the most atrocious, uh, heinous things that happened in history. And right. Hitler uses the Bible. He says, just as Jesus uh, cleansed the temple of the Jews, this is Hitler's language, I am cleansing the world of them. Wow. And so he creates, a, as one of my mentors said, all you have to do is twist the cross hmm. and you get a swastika. Hmm. And that's what Hitler and the Nazis did, is they twisted the cross. Um, but this was about some people are inferior to others. It's It begins when you stop recognizing the sacredness of every person. And that's what I keep coming back to in this book, right? And so then, like in Germany and a lot of the genocide, you start to see people referred to as cockroaches, as less than human, yeah. and that sort of paves the way to try to extinguish them from the world. You know, I mean, we even saw this, I ain't going to name names, I ain't scared to name names, bro, but like, you know, under the last presidency, you start to villainize people, or you call whole countries yeah, shithole countries. Yeah, okay. I'll say it. Yeah, you're good. You know, call it. Uh, and and you know, and you call people names, uh, animals, and 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 things like that. That's that's some of that dehumanizing that begins to um, can can keep spiraling into some of the most uh, terrible things we've ever seen. You know, so some of it started with anti-Semitism, but then you know, Plato and Aristotle began to bring this like colorism and race dynamic into it right so there was like a, comp a comparison to metals you know like some metals gold silver bronze they just have like some kind of this hierarchy uh, a racial hierarchy that began to develop uh and so anyway man i mean that that's that's left some deep roots for the hatred that we see today and that's why it's no surprise you know like just recently when white supremacists are marching in charlottesville right um and they're obviously is a uh, race dynamic when it comes to African-Americans, but they're also saying Jews cannot replace us, right? So this right. stuff is bound up together. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, I have, um, there's a book um, written by a guy named Andrew Torba. He's the founder of Gab. He wrote a book called Christian Nationalism, and it's incredibly anti-Semitic. I mean, it's blatantly. Like, he tries to say he's not being anti-Semitic by then being anti-Semitic. And, you know, listen, I track a lot of the far right stuff. I track people like Nick Fuentes, all those folks. You know, it, it is, I, I think people, 
and I'm guilty of this. I think we look back in history, even a couple of decades ago, oh, it was so clear back then, the overt, you know, racism and anti-Semitism. If I was aware, if I was alive back then, I would never have stand for it. And then you look now and so much of the same rhetoric in new ways is being pushed. And you don't, people don't see it the same way. They don't see it as, as urgent. You know, it's like, well, you're alive now, not then. So what are you going to do about this stuff? You know? Yeah, I, man. I, and one I, of my mentors said, whatever, uh, you know, people say, well, I wish I was alive with Dr. King. And he said, whatever you are doing now yeah. is what you would have been doing then. Right. Uh, so if you're not yeah. in the streets now, if you're not feeling this, this sense of like, we got to make some changes, like, uh, then, then the, the, we would have still been trying to watch the revolution on television. You know, <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, and I, I think for, just speaking to, about myself, like it's, Especially in this social media age, it's so easy to get you know um, complacent by thinking, well, maybe I'm posting some stuff and I'm, I'm helping on this end. But like, you have to make a call at some point where you say, especially if you're a white person, frankly, like if you're really outraged, what will it take for you to actually be inconvenienced and go to these places and fight with these people and stand on these front lines, you know, and put your white body on the line for the sake of your of your friends and folks that you claim you know, you're advocating for. There has to be that moment because I totally agree with you. I, you know, I think a lot of us think, oh, well, if, if I was around with MLK, I'd be protesting. No, you wouldn't. You'd be doing whatever you're doing right now. Um, I, it is interesting because the, even this you term- to, You got to yeah. preach in there, man. You got to uh, preach in Sorry, bro. Yes, I'm not a little worked up, you know? <laughs> I get a little fired up over this stuff. I, I, I'm learning so much so quickly. I'm just like, the more I'm reading I history, it, like right now I'm reading a book by a guy named Isaac Sharp called The Other Evangelicals. It's a history of, of, of uh, black, uh, queer, progressive evangelicals who essentially were just kind of pushed out. So like William Pinnell, um, um, a couple other folks that, that he mentions who I've never heard of before, but I'm reading the history of like the black evangelical movement and i'm like they're saying this they're saying stuff that if they were saying today they'd be they'd be called all these names that we hear today you know they're they're woke they're they're it's reverse racism nothing has shifted in the discourse you know and that to me is like oh my gosh like we're, we're still in this cycle but anyway i i digress from that yo man i mean we're even thinking about i mean some of the the, the classics like uh the letter from the birmingham jail you know dr king we just remembered 60 years ago it was written it could have been written yesterday because he's talking about like it's not just the 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 you know the hatred of your enemies that's so disturbing it's the silence of your friends and he calls yes. out the white moderate you know like your silence is 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 what keeps me up at night you know right <laughs> like, right yeah yeah no i i yeah, um, I, I totally agree with that 100%. And I do think, you know, I, I think it's worth talking because you mentioned this, actually, you you do, uh, you know, you, you do a really good job discussing like the reality of the situation. Like, listen, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, white evangelicals have a pretty dark history of racism, of lynching, of, of, of violence uh, towards communities who have been marginalized at the hands of you know, white people. And it seems like I'm seeing it's the same kind of like response today by, by white evangelical moderates or just even white evangelicals of, you know, well, you're, you're exaggerating or it's not what you think, or it's not that bad. And it's like, guys, that's what they were saying like 60 years ago. You know, how do you talk about this in the book and how do you tie it back to like rethinking life? 
the, so the question I keep coming back from is, you know, back to in the book, I mean, is, is, is this question, what does love require of us? Mm. Right. And that, that question kind of found me like a, like a refrain of a song, you know, as I was writing this book, because it's not just about ideologies. It's not just about single issues, but it's, it's this idea that, you know, over and over in scripture says, everything is summed up into this, into love. Love God, love your neighbor. And what, what does love require of us? Mm. Um, and what does love require of us when it comes to gun violence and the death penalty and abortion and all these issues? So I think that's, you know, the, 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 the big question. And for me, one of those folks that inspires me and I, I write about is Mother Teresa, right? Because she yeah. she didn't just have ideology. She didn't have bumper stickers and T-shirts. She didn't just hold picket signs, you know, picket signs outside Planned Parenthood. Like, she uh, brought in 10-year-old kids that were abandoned in train stations in India. I know because I met them, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years, 20 years later. Like, she brought in 14-year-old girls that were pregnant. Um, some of them were abused, you know. And she wasn't just about one issue. She was calling governors about, about the night before an execution, say, you've got the power to stop this. Do what Jesus would have you do. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. she's getting in the way of war. So I think it's also about action. And, and you know, one of the issues right now, or one of the, I think, the challenges is that there's a lot of people that have really strong convictions, but sometimes the question's not just, are you pro-life or pro-choice, but are you proactive? Like, what are you doing mm. about it? Like, how, and, and, and how do we, like, translate that into love? Um, because that's not always what people are talking about. And, and certainly self-righteousness, um, the culture wars uh, can affect people's posture on the left and the right, you know? Yeah. And so I think that, that love is a good grounding for this. Um, and... Uh, Uh, But, you know, when it comes to race, too, I think that it's a very interesting thing that uh, the response to Black Lives Matter was All Lives Matter. So that's one of the things I wanted to grapple with in the book. Like, what's going on there? Right. Like that. uh, And the fact is, there's a lot of folks that want to be post race or like we're colorblind. I don't see color. I just see a child of God. Um, And certainly there's a part of that to affirm. I mean, I I, I can definitely say I can stand behind every life matters. Every person precious. Everybody's made in the image of God, but there's also a deep, deep, something deeply disturbing if we can't be particular about that too, you know, because history, the history of injustice has been anything but colorblind, right? right? Has been very particular. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we said folks are three-fifths human. Black folks are. We, we said, you know, black folks in Dred Scott, they don't have any rights that white people have to acknowledge. The same folks that said all men are created equal owned black folks as property, right? So to yeah. say black lives matter isn't saying white lives don't matter. It's just saying we're right. going to affirm what history has denied, right? right. And right. Uh, and my friend Alexia Salvatierra, who I quote in um, the Rethinking Life book, she um. She points to that beautiful passage in Corinthians where it talks about how we're all one body with many parts. But then at the end of it, it says the parts of the body which have been dishonored are now given special 
honor, mm, mm. right? And that's what this is about, is that there are parts of the human family that have been dishonored. So we want to we, we say Black Lives Matter from the bottom of our hearts. We can also say Palestinian Lives Matter. You know, we can say Jewish Lives Matter in periods of anti-Semitism. We need to affirm whoever is being crushed. You know, disabled Lives Matter. Like, let's say LGBT Lives Matter. If we can't say Black Trans Lives Matter, then we don't believe all lives matter, right? right. So that's where I think it's, it's so important uh i think michael shea the comedian he said he said if your wife comes up to you and says honey do you love me you don't say back baby i love everybody (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah and i I think a lot of people i'll use myself as an example who are maybe for the first time in their life kind of waking up to these realities that 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 my own privilege afforded me not to have to look at you start learning new language like you know i i think i know what this is code for you know and i i think i know what these responses are kind of designed to do um you know that maybe the average you know um, white person thinks no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. But it's like, eh, you know, if you read some history, you start seeing some patterns here of, yeah. of of people who refuse to want to acknowledge the reality of the problem, and also who want to overwrite the experience of marginalized folks who are telling us yeah, what's going right. on. And we say, no, 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 all lives matter. And they're going, yeah, including ours. So can you listen to us? And it, yeah. it, it ends up becoming, you know, I mean, people don't, I think, understand or realize that colorblindness came out of the white supremacist playbook the book the book j russell by j uh, by j russell hawkins the bible told them so covers this extensively it was yeah. a way for them to essentially freeze the status quo and say okay look we'll just keep things as they are we just don't see color anymore so we don't want to do anything too much one way or the other the only problem is that it, it froze those dynamics in place with no room now for black folks and their experience to be heard because now that's quote unquote reverse racism. Right. So, yeah. you know, once you start learning that you go, Oh, I, I you see things with a new, with, with some new eyes. So I appreciate you sharing that uh, while we have a few minutes left. I, I do. We have to talk about the abortion issue. We have to talk about the abortion conversation. I, I, I was actually re- really curious how you were going to approach that in the book. Uh, you know, you and I are never going to give birth. We don't have the body parts to do that. Right. And so I'm always like, okay, how are we going to approach this? But then I saw that folks like Lisa Sharon Harper, you know, endorsed the book. So I'm like, okay, there's, there, there's some credibility there for me. So let me go ahead and read through this. Um, how how did you decide to approach abortion in the book and and what were some of your thoughts kind of going into it for you? Yeah, well, this is one of the things I wanted to work really hard to get right. And I listened yeah. to a lot of women. In fact, we've we've we ended up um, Lisa and I hosted two town halls on abortion, mm-hmm. uh, centering people, many people, many of whom had been, deep, you know, directly impacted by this. Um, and. Uh, that was part of my goal was to create a, a better framework for talking about abortion and starting with the fact that it affects a lot of people that we know and love. Um, yeah. And we might not know because we haven't created safe places to talk about it. Right. Hmm. And, you know, in the book, I talk about my mom who I didn't know had had an abortion um, until I started writing this new book and, hmm. and, and my mom wanted me to, talk about it. She wanted to talk about it with tears rolling down her face. It was a release and freedom to have a space to share about it. And my wife, you know, shares her own story um, in in the book. And so I I think that what, what I wanted to start as is that this, this, this issue does matter, but it's also one of the most complicated issues out there. Um, 
And even as we think about the early church, what they considered abortion was this broad array of things that included exposure, which was leaving a newborn child to die in the wilderness, right? Mm. And that decision was usually a man's decision of who, mm. who could live and who could die, when a woman could reproduce and when she couldn't. And there's a backdrop of men manipulating women's bodies um, and, and people of color, especially sterilizing folks when we don't want them to reproduce. Yep. Um, even recently, like on the border this was being done right but yep. in history we we used uh and i get choked up you know thinking about the history of this is we used african-american women as breeders lisa writes about that in her book you know yes. um because we wanted them to reproduce property for white men that owned them yeah. especially as the transatlantic slave trade uh, changed and domestic slavery was the, that's what you did is you were going to reproduce human beings as property, right? So, you can't divorce it from that history, and you can still have this sense that, like, um, I I am grieved by the loss of life or even the potential of life. So, Mm -hmm. the question for me is, like, what can we do that really would reduce the number of abortions? Um, And everywhere you look, the top reason for having an abortion is financial stability, just not feeling like the the family ha- the mother or the family has the resources to bring a kid or another kid into the world. And you go, if 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 we be- if that's true, like we should be championing uh, affordable childcare, healthcare, yeah. uh, parental leave, like all of these things that would certainly make it more. Uh, uh, feasible to have a kid, you know, uh, yep. and yet on a lot of those policies, Christians that say they're pro-life have have been obstacles to the policies that, that would actually save lives, right? Yep. And there's another side of this that I, you know, maybe we won't go into a lot of detail to, but people should read the, the history. I build on Randall Balmer's work of um, how abortion became the issue that eclipsed all others, how it, yes. be, you know, yes came to define what it means to be pro-life to the point that you can now say you're pro-life in America and still be pro-guns, pro-military, pro-death yeah. uh, uh, penalty, right. <laughs> anti-life on everything else, as long as you got abortion rights. So, you know, that's a problem. It's That's not yes. pro-life. That's pro-birth. Yes. And there's a lot of folks that say they're pro-life, but once the child is born, they don't continue to champion it, it you know, the dignity of, of that person. Yeah, no, I think that's great. You know, I, I, I like to think I talk to a lot of people. I, I especially folks who are are either um, in my spaces or who are even more progressive than I am on some things. I'm not aware of anyone I know, um, woman or or man, who who thinks that oh, if only we had more abortions in the country. You know, I'm not aware of anyone who's pro choice is like we just want more of these happening. As far as I'm aware, uh, the overwhelming majority consensus is like yes, like how can we minimize the need for abortion? Obviously, listen, there are things that can happen during pregnancy. I, I, I I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things like you just described. And I think, and you're talking to someone who grew up deeply in the pro-life movement. I had the abortionist homicide shirt that said, you won't you know, silence my message. You won't mock my God. You'll stop killing my generation on the back. I went to the, I went to, to the, the March for Life rally several times. And even when I was still more in those spaces, me being someone who thinks more pragmatically, I thought, well, 
if we want to stop abortions from happening, you know, if people had access to, you know, um, better birth control and to sexual education, that would uh, right away minimize so many of these unplanned pregnancies that would then get, make the need for abortion um, a reality on, on the scale that it might be needed for. Or like you said, Shane, okay, if we know that like financial poverty is one of the biggest factors and and I am pro-family as, a, as an evangelical Christian. What can we do as a society to yeah. make it more hospitable for families to flourish where mom and dad don't have to work outside the house 40, 60, 80 hours a week to pay another mortgage that is childcare that keeps them in this perpetual cycle of poverty, right? Yeah. And dude, so, yeah. and so as, I, as I saw, though, you know, my, my own experience thinking about those things and listening to like talk radio my whole life and listening to, you know, Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh saying, well, Obamacare is socialism and raising the affordable, raising wages is socialism. And, you know, these people just want to mooch off the system. I'm like, well, you realize that you're kind of creating the problem that, 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 that you're saying is so problematic in the country. And then when you learn that other countries actually have affordable healthcare for their folks or or child care you go wait a second like something doesn't add up it, it seems like like they're almost fighting themselves and creating the problem that is leading to so many you know um finding uh, abortion as a necessary evil for them i mean i, I know a lot of people who think that yeah. it's very frustrating to, frankly just to see the cycle yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, on this, I think that it's important to say that I do think abortion matters, right? And I think that there's some things that we could do, but the culture wars have kind of held us hostage. We're having like actually not reasonable conversations about this, right? So even some of the, like the words that people use, late term abortion, I mean, we even had, you know, President Trump even said like, you know, Sometimes the mom has a baby and they wrap it in a towel with a doctor and they decide whether or not they're going to kill it. Like that right. actually doesn't happen. It's never <laughs> right. happened. Right. Like right. it's murder. You, you go to jail. You're right. So, right. Um, yeah. But like um, even the late term abortion, we had uh, this incredible young woman on the uh, one of the town halls with Lisa and I, and she shared her story of having twins and lost of one of them. Um, as she was pregnant, and this became a, a one of the most ho- horrifying situations she was in, where her life was at stake, the the life of the other twin was at stake, um, and so she's trying to, and, and she also has the narrative of abortion is wrong, right? And so she's she's got that, and she talks. I mean, I don't want to. You, you got to listen to her, you know, like listen. But her her own stories, you you listen, and you're like, oh my gosh. I can't imagine that. And that's what we're right. talking about, right? Like, totally. Because I, I asked, we asked, there, I, I'm yet, I've tried to find someone who in their last trimester just decided, like, I, I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to have the kid, right? So, right. But I also think that this is why we need to be able to say, okay, even on gun laws, there's common sense boundaries. Can't we say, like, there's some common sense boundaries? perimeters. And this is going to be contested. You know, we're going to have to have some hard conversations. Not everybody's going to agree where life begins. But I also think like, even if I think something is not the moral decision that I would make, like, 
I still think people should have a right to do things that I think are, um, they can conflict with my own faith or conscience, right? It's why I'm not trying to make all guns illegal. And I think that's why it's interesting, right? All these people that are saying, well, laws won't change anything on guns. (laughs) They they sure think laws are going to change things on abortion. So there's that kind of contradiction that I think we need to have like a little bit more reasonable conversation on, you know? And there's folks on the left that don't want to think about abortion as a moral or ethical decision. You know, so I think, you know, that's where let's have a better conversation together. And, um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm actually, um, I think that there's, there's some really promising things happening, but it's a really, really desperate time in our country on so many of these issues that are very personal, um, to people. So, yeah, uh, anyway, listen, that the first real wake up call I had about who should, who should be the peep, the person to make the final decision about, a pregnancy scenario was when we got pregnant with our first and we went to the doctor. You know, everything was fine. Our first was born really healthy, but in the very beginning they said, listen, we test for ABCD and E. And if these tests come back a certain way, um, you know, um, your pregnancy or the child when it's born has about a hundred percent chance of not being viable. Like, like we, we just, we, we have the data on this and I was like, okay. And they go, yeah. So then you have to make a decision on what you want to do. And then I was like, you know, I would much rather this decision be between me, my wife, and my healthcare provider than the state telling me, sorry, if the heartbeat's there, you have to, you have to, your wife has to, you know, um, have the full pregnancy and then you have to hold a stillborn child, you know, because that's pro-life, right? Like, because the state doesn't know the circumstances that are happening in that pregnancy. And like you, Shane, I'm not, first off, the overwhelming numbers of abortions happen at at six to 10 weeks or less. I think it's like 1% are are considered quote unquote late term. And like you said, I'm not aware of any pregnant person who is, is at week 38, had the shower, has the nursery, has all the stuff and goes, you know, I just changed my mind. I'm, I'm yeah. I, I, you know, no, no, thank you. Let's just go ahead and, 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 and do ABCD&E. And if there was such a person, I think, I would think that most of us would say, you know, um, maybe you can't do that at week 38, you know, for yeah, that yeah. reason. So I do think that, that there's a way to have that conversation. But when one side's saying, ABC, you know, this politician believes in killing children up to birth. You're like, right, okay, right, right. how do we have a conversation around yeah. this? And people have their heels dug in and that, that's part of the, the difficulty, right? And so I, I tried to like offer some uh, nuance and open our hearts and minds up a little bit. And one of those, like I was with him last night on the phone is Patrick O'Neill. He has a daughter that has Down syndrome. Her, her name's Mary Evelyn. And he, he writes about her. He wrote a beautiful piece about how the world needs more people with down syndrome and he's grieving the fact that like we haven't really done a lot of good research on this. And so like we need to do better, right. So that people are accurately making decisions. And um, I I mean, he's very passionate on this, you know, because having his daughter that, you know, some countries where we don't have that passion for life, you end up cheapening and trivializing life. And I actually, you know, have a a whole like segment on the, one of the uh, folks that has down syndrome, that's an activist uh, to prevent abortions, you know, and uh, particularly of folks that have down syndrome. So, you know, when when we get our heels dug in, we're, we're not able to, I think, kind of have the space to have compassion and also the nuance, the humility to go, 
maybe there's a piece of this I haven't heard of. Maybe there's right. a part of right. this that I'm wrong. And, you know, you and I can have a little bit of grace because if we had found ourselves 20 years ago or 10 years ago, we would have, <laughs> we would have been button heads with our own self. So, yeah, yeah, no, that is that is the truth. That is the truth. Um, yeah, Let me ask you maybe a final question here. I, again, Shane, I appreciate you making time and, and coming on the podcast, but I mean, sometimes I just get frankly discouraged, you know, because I see the power that a minority of evangelical Christians have in our state politics and our federal politics. And it just is frustrating to me that in the supposed world's greatest country, you know, there's people are in medical debt. You know, we can't seem to get like things that are hopefully by now for many in many places, a standard of living. We can't seem to get them like either passed or 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 or. They don't seem to happen because the rhetoric is the same stuff that we always hear. I mean, give me, is there, do you, do you see some hope? Do you see change? I just feel stuck. I feel like we're in a gridlock of the same talking points of like, well, that's, that's a nanny state. That's socialism that, you know, it's not my job to pay for that person's healthcare. And it's like, oh my gosh, like how can we move forward when I keep hearing from people with a lot of power saying those kinds of things that keep us in these systems where, listen, the data is not good. The wealth gap is exploding. Um, you know, the average, um, if you're a, a BIPOC or single working parent in America, your average wage is $15 an hour or less. That is not sustainable. Housing's out of control. Help me, give me some hope here. You know, like, like what are you seeing? Cause you're much more in the activist community. I know you, I know you're tapped into stuff that's going on behind the scenes. Do you see some progress here? Do you see hope on the horizon? Well, it is one of the things that, you know, is quite therapeutic about just beating the crap out of a uh, AR 15, man. So like, uh, you can take, take some of that angst out, but uh, you know, I, I, I am really, really hopeful. Um, and some of it is because I know what people have made it through, you know, and, yeah. and, um, and I look at the, you know, for instance, you know, we just came from Tennessee from Nashville yeah. and I look at, um, the, these, especially these two young guys, you know, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, Justin Jones has been a friend for a lot of years. We've done a lot of organizing together and he's been a part of red letter Christians. You know, we've marched mm -hmm. over and over the, uh, every execution from death row to the Capitol. And, um, and yet like these two guys, like they are fueled by their yeah. faith, yeah, by their faith. They yeah. love Jesus, right? Like they're not willing to compromise uh, our faith to the folks that are trying to hijack it, you know? And so they're doing, they're combating the bad theology and Bible verses that are thrown out there by these old white dudes in, in the house. Like they're using yeah. good theology. Like they're not, they're not going to give up Jesus. They're going to bring back Jesus, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I, I, I'm encouraged. I mean, in yesterday, you know, we were just talking about this or, or, you know, when we were in Nashville, the, um, they, at one point, Reverend Barber asked, um, everybody that is a pastor or faith leader to stand. Yeah, and yeah. it felt like, a you know, almost half the room. I mean, hundreds yeah. of pastors, right? Yeah. So that's why, you know, I'm putting a lot of energy into Red Letter Christians, which which incidentally was born in Nashville when a country music DJ was at, you know, Jim Wallace and him were talking and uh, he said, you know, I've read a lot of the Bible and I find some of it confusing and troubling, but I've always liked the stuff in red, you know, talking about <laughs> the words of Jesus. Yeah. And so that this idea that uh, at the heart of red letter Christians is that the way that we're going to change 
the narrative is by changing the narrators yeah um and like centering the voices of folks that have a healthier more robust version of christianity than the folks that are just using jesus as their mascot for their own kind of agenda you know um and, and, and the young people are fed up. I love it. It's great, yeah. you know? Yeah. But a lot of them are not giving up on Jesus. They're giving up on a version of Christianity that ironically has given up on Jesus, you yeah. know? <laughs> that, that likes Don, Donald Trump a little yeah. bit more than Jesus, you know? Yeah, and that, I feel they're that. Trying to, yeah, so anyway, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. And I think there's some beautiful things happening all over our country, you know, the way that the church rose up in Ferguson with Tracy Blackman and others, you know, and the way that uh, Reverend Barber and the Moral Mondays movement and all over our country, there's this liberating, life-giving, good news to the poor, welcoming right. the immigrant version of Christianity. So yeah. I'm, I'm all about it, man. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. You know, I, I'm, I am hopeful in that way. Um, I think there are a lot of people from all different walks of life who are, are just kind of fed up with the uh, version of Christianity that, that they've inherited that, uh, you know, traded um, the flag for the, uh, the the cross for the flag, you know, frankly. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of us are trying to renegotiate our faith and say, you know, we're reading the Sermon on the Mount. It's not really a jive in with like what we're seeing. You know? yeah, 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 I'm right. no theologian, but uh, something doesn't add up. So uh, anyway, okay, friends, listen, the book is Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. Uh, Shane, a true pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. Where can folks find you? Um, you know, uh, plug away some of your, your social medias. Well, I I try to be. I'm not quite as active as you are, Tim, but I'm, I'm pretty good on my uh, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's uh, my name, uh, Shane Claiborne, and then Red Letter Christians is on everything too. And if you're kind of looking for, if you feel sort of spiritually homeless and you're looking for for a, a, a place to belong, you might you might at least consider Red Letter Christians, which is redletterchristians.org. Um, and if you're in Philly. Come hang out with Tim and I. Yeah. Come to the shop. Beat on Anytime. an AR-15. Come on. <laughs> I love it. All right, friends. Well, again, Shane, thanks for your time. We'll talk again soon. And uh, yeah, keep in touch. Heck yeah, man. always see bad weather coming, so it's essential that you're able to see through it when you drive. Michelin wiper blades with advanced technology hug your windshield like a Michelin tire hugs the road, channeling away water, snow, and ice so you can see clearly, drive confidently, and breathe easy. Michelin wiper performance, clearer than ever. Upgrade to Michelin premium wipers today at Walmart, Amazon, and other fine retailers. The crackling flame, the piercing heat. We were all born with a fire burning deep within our bellies. For me, Gustavus Swift, I turned my fire into the creation of Swift Foods back in 1855. For you, it might simply be to smoke a tastier rack of ribs than that blowhard Steve. Go on, find your spark. Swift Foods, inspiring extraordinary meals since 1855.